Now we should really by rights be continuing our series on great songs in the Bible. We only did one. Exodus chapter 13. And it was meant to be the case this morning that we would do the second one. But this week has been a crazy busy week. Uh, we've had bereavement and there's been all kinds of difficulty and illness. Some of you know about family things that have been going on. And, um, and I think also during this week the Lord has been pressing other things on my heart. Um, it's not that I haven't prepared because I've had to prepare to preach this morning. But I don't think I could prepare something on songs because I feel preoccupied with other things that the Lord has put on my heart. So we don't normally do this, but I have, I have things that are burning uh, in, in, my, in my bones really that I want to share with you this morning. Some of what I want to say this morning, we touched on in communion on Wednesday. I think it was already beginning to burn them, those of you who are there. But... Um, uh, I want us to kind of fill out some of the things that we think about on Wednesday and, uh, and, and hopefully try to put some thoughts in a sensible order so that they make sense uh, to you. Um, sometimes it's good for ministers to say, I, I want you to know that I love you and, um, and I love this church. It is a great joy to serve God here in this place. I don't want to be anywhere else and uh, it is important for you to realise that with all of my energy I want to stretch and strain and strive to make sure that our church is healthy and authentic and real and genuine I want us to be Bible believing and Christ centred and the issues are these we, we live in a culture that is losing its moral compass altogether it, it is a confusing world that we live in. It is a scary world in many ways, and I know many of us feel perplexed about that. But worse than all of that, we also live in days where much of what passes for Christian church is nothing of the sort. And I, I said to my kids yesterday, I think this might be a shouty sermon. I hope that I try and... I, I, I want to be gentle, but this burns in my heart and, uh, and I love you this is too important for us to be trivial about it is, it is like the church of Jesus has forgotten its core mission and has nothing to say into a world that is losing its moral compass and I, what, I think what disturbs me more than anything is the, the number of Christians that I meet almost every day it seems who are confused and disappointed and empty and even guilty. Let me give you some examples. I met uh, fairly recently, not in this last week, a middle-aged man with a family who, who is part of a church that's probably been in decline. Tired of trying to keep things going. Tired. But you know the thing that really struck me, this guy looked at me with tears in his eyes and he said, do you know what the worst thing is? I feel lonely. I feel lonely. I'm part of a church family. We're all busy doing things, trying to keep the doors open. And I have no friends. And I'm lonely. 
it's not the only time that people have said that to me. I was talking on Friday to someone about a particular Christian denomination. And he summed up very helpfully the approach of that denomination and its leaders. He said they know they're declining and they're basically managing decline. And the sad thing is, uh, I wrote it down here so I wouldn't get it wrong. He said they are basically encouraging people to be nice in the hope that some people might be attracted by that. Teaching the Bible or preaching about Jesus is probably three or four or five down the list. And caring for people socially is up near the top. That isn't the gospel. That isn't a Christian church. That's pathetic and weak. Let me give you another example. I want to dwell on this one. This is another extreme. Some churches are falling the top of just being nice. There's nothing wrong with being nice. I like people who are nice. But that isn't the gospel. Let's uh, give you another extreme. I noticed this week on the BBC News site that one of the miners from Chile is doing a tour of the UK. He's going all around churches. And you know, I used to work down Motley Pit. And I pricked up my ears at this. And uh, so I got, I got sucked it, you know, like you do. You look on one website and it leads you to another, it leads you to another. And eventually I saw a link that said, download, download the tour dates. Oh, I thought, I'll have to have a look. I wonder if he's coming to Sheffield. And sure enough, he was coming to Maltby this very week. And I thought, I can't miss this. I used to work in Maltby. I lived in Maltby. I'm going to go and listen to this miner uh, telling his story of how they were rescued. You know the story in August? 33 miners. 69 days, was it? They were underground. To hear this guy in the flesh talking about his Christian faith. And it was amazing, I've got to say, it was incredible to hear him describe their ordeal. They had enough water for one day. Some tins of tuna and a few sardines. 69 days. You can't begin to imagine. He, he described how one of the drills, they heard it go past them. And they thought that the authorities would give them up for dead because they'd missed where they were hiding. And then another drill came. It's an amazing story. His wife was there very beautiful uh, lady and uh, she was asked what was the first thing you said when your husband came out of the little capture and she said, she said what she said was it's two times like this hello darling that was a long shift <laughs> I thought that was good 69 days that was a long you've done some long ones but that was the longest now this man Jose Enrique he was an inspirational guy clearly a strong man and he had been a leader underground with the others it was interesting. It was a real privilege to hear him. But my ears pricked up when the man who was asking him questions through an interpreter asked him about his faith. And, and this, this was his answer. I'm, I'm sure this man is a Christian man and a godly man. And I'm not being critical here. This is on CD, so I'm going to get shot down in flames if someone hears this in the public domain. This man was a lovely, gracious man. But when he was asked about his faith, he, this is what he said, I'm paraphrasing here, it was through a translator, but he said, the reason I knew God was going to rescue us is because God loves me. And he went on to say, I know God loves me for two reasons. 
And the first reason he gave was, I feel it. I feel that God loves me. And the second reason he gave was that God, amongst other things, had healed his grandfather. Now maybe I am just a cynical bloke from Wigan. But I wanted to stand up and say, what about people who don't feel it? And what about all the people whose grandfathers have died? He meant well, but by implication what he was saying was, if, that, if those things have happened to you, that must mean that God doesn't love them. If that's the true reason you give for God loving you, what hope is there for victims? And the whole tone of the presentation after that was one of, this rescue was a miracle. And it certainly was amazing. But if God's love is measured by a miracle of that kind, how do minus families cope when God doesn't rescue them? Does God not love them and only love Jose and his 32 companions? There's something very subtle and I, I sat in that church, 500 people there, with people clapping and shouting hallelujah and praise Jesus. And I'm standing there in the middle of this thinking, this is not the gospel. These people are not preaching the gospel. At the end of the session, the man translating said that this rescue was down to the fact that Jose had prayed. And so he asked everyone to put their hands on parts of their body that needed healing. And he said to the congregation, Oh say, has prayed to God and God has heard his prayer before and he will hear his prayer today. And if you put your hand on a part of the body that's ill, he also will pray for you and you will know God's healing. I wanted to say to him, I'm sorry to get upset here, where were you when my friend Van was dying? in the Queen's Medical Centre. You weren't stood by our bedside praying then. Where were you this week when my little niece, Izzy, was diagnosed with possible meningitis? You were wasting your time standing in church. Go down to Rotherham General Hospital and pray for them. You, the NHS is struggling at the moment. We could afford more schools if you went and prayed for all the sick people in the hospital. Would he do it? I think it would be embarrassing. It is not the gospel. And I, I care about you too much. I don't want to be critical. But we have got to get this right. Because if we don't get it right, we will be powerless to speak into a lost world the gospel of Jesus. I'm not saying that we're better. I just want us to be awake and alert. And put our faith in the right things. And for some of us, that is going to mean repenting of trusting in the wrong things and choosing to trust in the right things. Our thinking has got to be shaped by the gospel. And we cannot afford to get that the wrong way around. If we let our thinking shape what the gospel is, we will be running around in circles. And so this morning, I've got a lot to say this morning, and I don't want to overwhelm you. We're going to meander a little bit. We'll see where we go. I have prepared. 
but you know, there's only so many hours in the day. We'll, we'll see where we go and where we get to. And if we don't finish, we'll come back to you some other time. I want to talk about the gospel. I just want to say three things. What is the gospel? That is fundamental. We're going to talk about that. And then I want to say two things. What does the nature of the gospel say about those who preach it? What should preachers look like who preach this gospel, if that's what it is? And then the second thing I want to say is, how does a wonky gospel, I can't think of a better way, sorry, how can a wonky gospel affect those who hear it? So, the word wonky is not really the right word, but you know what I mean. I didn't have a lot of time. So, let's think about the gospel first. What was my next slide? We'll come back to that in a minute. Let me turn that off. The gospel, uh, we talked about this on Wednesday, the gospel is scandalous. And do you know what? We have sanitised it. And we've made it clean when it isn't. We wear jewellery and uh, the, the, you know, crosses. Can you imagine wearing a piece of jewellery that has like an electric chair on it? Or, or a rifle? That's a nice piece. Of, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with wearing crosses. It's become a symbol of Christianity. I know that. But the reality is the cross is a bloody instrument of torture and death. And it's not nice. The Christian gospel is not nice. It is a scandal. Paul said in the passage that we read in 1 Corinthians, we preach Christ crucified. We go to places and we tell them, we proclaim to them a bloody executed saviour. That is scandalous when you think about it. There's nothing nice about that at all. And the issue with this, if, if, you, if you're in 1 Corinthians, it would be good for you to stay there for a, for a minute. Page 1145. Um, the issue is that the way that God works is totally opposite to the way we think and work. And Paul says that in this very chapter. The message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. And, and he, he goes on. The world thinks it's wise and thinks that it knows God. And yet God has confounded the wisdom of this world by using a Roman gibbet to save sinners. It is the, it's back to front. And God magnifies his own wisdom. It, Paul says here, God's weakness is stronger than man's strongest strength. When man stands there and goes like that, God's weakness is better than his best effort at strength. It's sort of, Paul is almost straining language here. The foolishness of God. It's almost like if God were being stupid, that would be better than man's best wisdom. And what does God do? He sends his son to die. Jews want miracles. What they got was a bloody cross. Gentiles want wisdom and sophistication and intellectual stimulation. What do they get? A bloody cross. It is an offence. It is scandalous. Just think for me with a minute about the Old Testament history that God has given us. I don't know what you know about Old Testament history, but um, 
God had a nation in the Old Testament, the Jews, the nation of Israel. They, they descended from one man, Abraham, and they had a very uh, vibrant, multicoloured history, all sorts of ups and downs. When they came into their own land, uh, they had kings to rule over them. The nation split into two, Israel in the north, Judah in the south. Most of the kings were pretty bad, led them astray into idolatry, and there were prophets who stood up very bravely and said, this is wrong. Some of them suffered greatly for that, and they warned that if they didn't repent of their idolatry, they wanted to be like all the other nations. If they didn't repent of their idolatry, that God would judge them. And eventually they didn't heed any of the warnings, and they were both, both parts of the nation were carried off into exile. And what a shame that is for God's people. When they talk about their God, Jehovah, and these pagan, ridiculous gods of these foreign countries, and God's people have been taken into exile, what does that say about Jehovah? He can't protect you. It's just, it's just they're broken, pathetic. And how weak it makes God look. And we're still, it's their own fault. They're rebellion, idolatry. There was a prophet called Isaiah who lived in the royal court and he spoke under successive kings very powerfully into these cultural realities. And he says a lot about God's people and he says a lot about their enemies and about God's judgment. But in chapter 40 of Isaiah, the note changes and the first word of chapter 40 is comfort. My people are broken, ashamed and guilty. Comfort them. Now, we haven't got time to, to go, I'd love to go through all of this, but let, let's just say this. From that point on in Isaiah, Isaiah begins to introduce a person who is known mysteriously as the servant. It, it is a little bit about songs from the Bible, because they're known as servant songs. And Isaiah, intertwined in all this history, he introduces this servant. And gradually, through the mist, God's broken people begin to see the ultimate servant who would deliver God's broken people. Oh, I wish we had more time. Let's just go to Isaiah chapter 52. Isaiah 52, page 740. I want to be quick. We've got a lot to say. In Isaiah 52, this is God speaking, and he says this. See, in verse 13, just over the page there, See, my servant, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. But, just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any man, and his form marred, beyond human likeness, so he will sprinkle many nations and kings will shut their mouths because of him. Here is a servant and Isaiah said, well it's God speaking through Isaiah, who is raised and lifted up and high. This is a mighty person and yet he will be 
so disfigured that people would not even think he was a man. Now that's an interesting note for Isaiah to bring, isn't it? 700 years before Jesus is born. And as you get into chapter 53, it's not God speaking then, it's people. And in the first little section, verses 1 to 3, it's like, we never knew who he was. And verses 4 to 6 is like, but we do now. (laughs) And just read with me. What they say, who has believed our message and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and familiar with suffering. Like one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. We never knew who he was. We expected a great warrior. What we got was a bit pathetic, frankly. A man of sorrows who suffered. And then the light dawns. And these people see it. Surely he took up our infirmities and carried our sorrows. Yet we considered him stricken by God, smitten by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Can I say to you, there is no message like that anywhere in the world. Here is a broken people. What do they need? They need a broken saviour. A broken people need a broken saviour. That is why Paul, when he goes to talk to people, says, we preach what? Christ crucified. Because broken people need a broken saviour. Paul is in perfect harmony with that sentiment from Isaiah. We don't preach. I don't, what, you could preach anything you like. <laughs> you could tell people to be nice. You can, Paul said, we preach Christ crucified, a broken saviour for a broken people. Now, there are two possible responses to that statement. This is the gospel. Remember this. Broken people need a broken saviour. That is the gospel. You could say... I'm not really broken. I'm alright actually. I'm not as bad as so and so. I'm not really, you know, I'm, I don't really think I'm not perfect, but I don't think I'm really broken. You could say that. That would be one response, but you would be arguing with God. Because God's diagnosis is that we're all broken. And you can shake your fist in God's face and say, I'm not broken, I'm alright. I'm not, I don't want to offend you. But you're not arguing with me, you'd be arguing with God. But the second response is perhaps more subtle. You could say, oh I know I'm broken, but you know what? I can fix myself. Or someone else can. 
That would be a second response. But if you go there, you will never know the gospel or the power of God. And that's the scandal of the cross. That is the offensive message that we preach. Broken people need a broken saviour. This is why Paul says that the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but it's the power of God to those who are being saved. The Jews hated it because they wanted a great Messiah who would smash the Romans to bits. They wanted miracles. What they got was a broken saviour. The Greeks hated it because they wanted intellectual sophistication, as we've seen. They wanted clever ideas to be new, dynamic, creative, all of that. What they got was a cross. Listen, you will never see it unless God opened your eyes to see it. And when it comes down to it, the two things you need to see and I need to see more than anything else in all the world is your own brokenness and the fact that God has given you a crucified saviour. Your greatest need is not so much for your problems in life to be fixed. Your greatest need is for your sins to be forgiven and for you to come into a relationship with God by faith in what Jesus has done to save you from death and sin and hell. Here it's Paul writing to the Corinthian church but we can also see Paul in action. Oh, I don't, I'm going to hit like the yellow pages today. Let's let the fingers do the talking and walk in. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. Some of you are taking notes. You've got Bibles, notepads, pens. It's all going to go pear-shaped in a minute. Acts chapter 17. Paul goes to Thessalonica. It's page 1113 if you've got a church Bible. And let's have a look what Paul did when he went to Thessalonica. He went to the synagogue in verse 2. And on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. What is he doing? He's preaching from the Bible and pointing them to Christ crucified. That's exactly what he's doing. He's not giving them bells and smells. He isn't giving them some super duper story of his holidays. He's just telling them about Jesus from the Bible I, I think Paul would have gone to Isaiah 53 and done exactly what we've just done. Have you read Isaiah 53, guys? Look at what it says there. Jesus of Nazareth fulfills all of this. Isn't that amazing? Broken people, you have a broken saviour. He loves you. He died for you. Put your faith in him. Some people believed it. And some people were angry. A little church is planted. And it's persecuted by people who don't like the offence and the scandal of the cross. This is the way it is. In all places. Well now you have some tools to measure things with. When you see people claiming to preach the gospel, you can ask yourself these two questions. Is this preaching leading broken people to trust in a broken saviour? Do you know, when I went to Maltby on Friday, do you know the cross wasn't mentioned until the last sentence of a prayer that someone made at the end. I'm really working hard not to be critical. We preach Christ crucified, Paul said, 
that man who was preaching something else he wasn't preaching Christ crucified he was preaching what a super duper God who can do miracles that isn't the gospel Jesus would not recognise the gospel that was preached in that place on Friday Paul would be appalled what are you doing people are hopping and hollering and high-fiving one another and saying hallelujah it's not the gospel whatever it is it isn't the gospel when you see people claiming to preach the gospel you've got a test now is this preacher leading broken people to trust a broken saviour if it is you say amen that's the gospel if he's encouraging them to have a better self-esteem and encouraging them not to be broken you say I'm not staying here and if he's telling them that they are broken and they need to trust some superman with underpants on the outside of his trousers you get up and leave because that isn't the gospel a broken people need a broken saviour that's the gospel well, oh, my life we need, we've got two points yet <clears throat> now this has got implications for people who preach and it's got implications if it's not preached right so let's be quick how should the gospel shape preachers I want to look with you first of all at 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and if you're making notes get these down and you can think about this as homework because I know you love homework um, I'm going to say three things that preachers are not if, if the gospel is, bro- is a broken saviour for broken people what should preachers look like first of all preachers are not supermen who have all the answers they're not preachers are not men who've got everything sorted and who do wear their underpants on the outside of their trousers preachers are human beings who proclaim a message they often do it with great weakness 1 Corinthians chapter 2 Jane read to us listen to what Paul says when I came to you brothers I did not come with eloquence or superior wisdom as I proclaimed to you the testimony about God you could write over that verse Paul saying I'm not superman for I resolved to know nothing while I was with you except Jesus Christ and him crucified I came to you in weakness and fear and with much trembling my message and my preaching were not with wise and persuasive words but with a demonstration of the spirit's power why? so that your faith might not rest on God's wisdom on man's wisdom but on God's power oh there's so much more I want to say we'll have to miss that bit we'll come back to that another day let me tell you something else preachers are not second hand car salesmen either they're not they're not supermen and they're not second hand car salesmen why do I say that just go forward to 2 Corinthians chapter 4 I'm sorry to make you work hard I'm not really (laughs) 2 Corinthians chapter 4 2 Corinthians chapter 4 page 1160 listen to what Paul says therefore since through God's mercy we have this ministry we do not lose heart rather we have renounced secret and shameful ways 
We do not use deception, nor do we distort the word of God. On the contrary, by setting forth the truth plainly, we commend ourselves to every man's conscience in the sight of God. That is a phenomenal passage. We're not second-hand car salesmen. We're not trying to do dodgy deals with brown envelopes. We're not trying to twist the gospel to make it wonky and mean something like it doesn't. Our job is to declare the truth as plainly and as relevantly and as down-to-earthly as we can. And it's God who turns the light on in people's hearts. We can't convert anyone. It's a miracle. God can do that. Our job is to preach God's truth. Broken people need a broken saviour. Thirdly, preachers are not show-offs. I don't know if you can see that picture. It's a strong man holding an elephant up and he's saying, easy, easy. Sometimes preachers can look like that, can't they? Preachers are not show-offs. What does Paul say in chapter 4 and verse 7? He says, we have this treasure in jars of clay. Just, just read with me what he says here. Verse 8, we are hard pressed on every side but not crushed, perplexed but not in despair, persecuted but not abandoned, struck down but not destroyed. We carry around always in our body the death of Jesus. Do you think Paul had an easy life? He wasn't Superman, he wasn't a second hand car salesman and he wasn't a show off. He was a preacher of the gospel of Jesus and it cost him. He has scars. He was battle weary. He got tired. I was reading one passage at the start of 2 Corinthians recently and Paul said, I don't want you to be uninformed brothers about the trouble we had in Asia. We despaired even to the point of despairing of life itself. We, we, it was far beyond our ability to endure. <laughs> Do you know that you have a minister who feels like that? <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing half the time. Yeah. sometimes I feel schizophrenic you know I'll get up one morning I think it's great doing this saving God and other days I'll get up and I think I'm as mad as a balloon what on earth am I doing this for our church is not even scratching the surface of uh, a, a massive town we've got so little resource we have so many needs and I sometimes think what on earth am I doing this for Paul said we felt we couldn't even cope that's what Paul said we have a treasure in jars of clay. We're men. We're not supermen. And you know what? People are being converted. People are being baptised. People are being grafted into our church. It isn't because I'm superman. It's because God is powerful and the gospel works. And he gets the glory. Not Paul or me or some of the pretend superman. The climax of all this. Read 2 Corinthians chapter 10 and 11 when you get home. He has to rebuke them for following people who Paul sarcastically calls super apostles. Paul writes big letters, but he's a bit lame when you meet him. He doesn't speak very well, does he? Like you'd expect some professional apostle to speak like we do. Can you see the irony of that? Broken people need a broken saviour, and yet his servants preach by showing off how great they are. The irony. I've got a theory about this. And it's based on verse 17 of chapter 4, if you're still there. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 17. 
Paul says, for our light and momentary troubles are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. The secret for Paul was that he knew that it wasn't time for heaven yet. It's going to be a hard battle now, but there's glory to come. Do you know what the problem is with super apostles and show-off preachers? It's that they think that heaven is for now. You shouldn't have any troubles if you're a Christian. You should know perfect peace, healing of body and mind, wholesome. That is, they've got the timing all wrong. One day it'll be like that, but it's not like that for me yet. I look forward to that, but it's not that time yet. It wasn't that time for Paul. He knew, I've got trouble now, and there's glory to come. These super preachers have got their timing all wrong. Paul knows this because he knows Jesus. Do you know what the last thing Jesus said to his disciples at the end of the Last Supper before they went out? Do you know what it was? He said to them, in this world you will have fancy cars, nice comfortable art. No, he didn't. He said, in this world you will have trouble. But be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. And if you follow me, so will you. The problem with some preachers is they don't want trouble. They only want success and strength and to look cool and have kudos. And what begins to happen is they preach a different gospel, a wonky gospel, that is all about experiencing heaven now rather than there. They tell people that Christians shouldn't suffer. They subtly imply that if you're struggling, you must have got the Christian life wrong. If you do struggle, they'll get impatient with you and they'll leave you by the side of the road for someone else to pick up. Their gospel becomes, come to Jesus and all your problems will go away. He'll give you everything you want. Their gospel is that you are entitled to heaven now rather than then. And if you just claim it as yours, all will be well. It is rubbish and it's dangerous. We need to rattle on. Let me talk about, oh, oh I've put wobbly there now, not wonky. <laughs> How does a wobbly gospel affect those who hear? We'll have to just quickly rattle through this and then we're done. A wobbly gospel that promises comfort that God didn't promise will cause people to have wrong priorities. What broken people need is relationship with God. Not freedom from all their difficulties and problems. They need to know, even in the midst of their difficulties, that God is for them that he loves them, that he's with them and not against them because of Jesus. And if we promise things that God never promises, we'll deceive people and encourage wrong priorities. Recent, well, not recently, last year sometime, we got a leaflet from a church near where we live and it said we're having some special events, a speaker's going to come. And at the bottom it said, sometimes people who've heard this man preach have been healed. And they sent it to all the homes around the church. That is an attempt to lure people to an event by false promises. Come to this service 
and Jesus will heal you. Broken people need a broken saviour. First, God can heal people. But when we promise things that God doesn't promise, oh, I'll go to that then. Actually, I think most non-Christians see through it better than Christians do and think, what a, what a group of idiots they are. Sending leaflets like, oh, I'm not going anywhere near that church. And thank God that God gives non-Christians wisdom to avoid people who say that kind of nonsense. What happens is people begin to seek emotional highs. They seek the next dramatic evidence of God's presence being them, with them. And Jose said it. He meant well. But what he said, how do you know God loves you? Because I feel it and because God has done healings. That isn't the right answer. How do you know God loves you, Jose? Because God sent his son to die on a wooden cross for your sins. That's the right answer, mate. Secondly, it causes disappointment. I said at the beginning, I meet so many Christians almost every day. And I've got to say, they're, they're psychologically damaged. Because they've fallen for the lie that they ought not to be suffering. I've told you before, when I was a teenager, there was a church in Wigan. And there was a South African guy there whose wife was dying of cancer. And the church prayed for her. And she died. And the elders of the church excommunicated the husband. And they said to him, your wife has died because you didn't have the faith to believe that God could heal her. I think people should, that should be made illegal, that. People should be locked up who say things like that. Well, I don't need to say anymore, but that's ridiculous. Third thing I want to say is it makes Christians fragile. Do you know what? We, we have raised a whole generation of Christian people who have no backbone. And the reason is they've fallen for the lie that they mustn't have struggles. But I do. So maybe God doesn't love me. And what happens is every time a crisis comes, or an illness happens, or tension increases, or you lose something, it knocks you sideways, completely off balance. And the underlying reason for that is that you are equating God's presence with a comfortable, successful life. So if these things don't happen, God must have rejected you. The number of Christians I meet who feel guilty because they've shed tears. And it's, it's like, what you're going through is hard. Don't add to it and carry a double burden by feeling guilty that you're letting God down. If you fall for the lie that God, God's presence with you is determined by how you feel or whether some miracle has happened, you will be up and down like a great big fat yo-yo. You will know no stability. You'll never stand up. You'll always be falling over. And how many Christians do we know like that? They hop from church to church. They have no backbone. There's no depth. Because they're looking for the next big thing, the next high. And there's no grounding in God's word and what Jesus has done for them. Broken people do not need empty promises. They need a broken saviour. It can lead to hypocrisy. I don't need to really explain this one. There's a danger that pe- what will happen in this kind of culture is that people will just pretend to be happy all the time when they're not. They will. 
And they'll go home and struggle. They'll close the door and go and cry on the bed, but they don't want any of the fellow Christians to see that they're struggling because they'll think I'm big backslidden. That's how authentic relationships go out the window. And there's a final one. It can make Christians promise things they shouldn't. Part of the issue here is that we care for one another and we mean well, don't we? And when someone's in trouble, you know, we want to say to them, oh, surely God doesn't want you to suffer. Oh, I'm sure God's going to deal with this and sort it out. We mean well, but it causes untold damage to give the impression that suffering is somehow an evidence that God has forgotten you. What we need to be doing is encouraging one another to know God's presence in our sufferings. And in some churches, you know, this becomes, you know, I heard the story recently of a blind student university went to a Christian Union house party and someone suggested to him that God would heal him on this weekend away. And this person said to this Christian student, I've had a word from the Lord, I, I really believe that God's going to heal you. And this man, the student, he began to sense that, you know, he felt it in his mouth. I feel a peace about it. I feel that God's going to heal me. They went on the house party, it didn't happen. The poor guy was devastated. People mean well, but when we promise things to one another that God hasn't promised, we will do great damage. In our desire to help one another, we mustn't cross that line and say, I think God's telling me that God can do miracles. God does heal people. Sometimes God intervenes our lives in amazing ways. But we mustn't cross the line and give the impression that God will do that. I, I was talking with someone during the week and I said, you know, God can gain glory for himself by healing, delivering. But he gains great glory too by giving us the grace to endure patiently difficulties. And we need to be aware of that. It's not just fireworks and miracles. Sometimes it is just putting one foot in front of the other and being faithful and trusting God and his son, Jesus Christ. I was going to say a little bit about miracles, but we've run out of time, so I won't. Well, I was going to close by turning to Romans chapter 8, so let's do that. Romans 8. Romans chapter 8. Someone has said that Romans chapter 8 is one of the most gory chapters in all the Bible. And written across it, in great big red letters, is the word hope. Let me, um, let me read to you. And you, you. You can tell me as I'm reading this, does this fit with the kind of gospel that sometimes we hear preached? Listen to Paul, verse 18. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning, as in the pains of childbirth, right up to the present time. 
Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope we were saved. But hope that is seen is no hope at all. Who hopes what he already has? But if we hope for what we do not yet have, we wait for it patiently. Does that not sum up everything we've just been saying? In the same way, the Spirit helps us in our what? Weakness. We don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And he who searches our hearts knows the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints in accordance with God's will. Here's the hope. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. Those he called, he also justified. Those he justified, he also glorified. What then shall we say in response to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who is he that condemns? Christ Jesus who died. More than that, who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord Hallelujah. Amen